If I say the word lecture, I'm going to look around and see how many people yawn. I think just that word makes us want to yawn. We think about either sitting through a lecture in school or a lecture we received from a parent when we had misbehaved as kids. And really, if you think about the word itself, it's related to reading because lecturers used to read the classics and then they would discuss them in their classes. But there are lectures that can make a difference. Mr. and Mrs. Singer had two small children. Mrs. Singer had pestered Mr. Singer about his overconsumption of alcohol many times. But the time he heard it, the one that made the difference was when she told him that if he didn't stop drinking, she would take their children and leave. Mr. Singer stopped drinking, cold turkey, as they say, and never started again. He didn't like that message, and yet he welcomed it. Now, the Apostle Peter was no stranger to talking. While he had wisely confessed Jesus as Messiah, he also had a habit of making completely inappropriate statements sometimes, like boasting about accompanying Jesus to his death, failing to do so, and suggesting on the mountain of transfiguration that they build three tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And more recently, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, saying things like, Woman, I do not know him. So that's the Peter we've seen through most of the Gospels. Now in Acts, when Peter starts lecturing to the people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit has descended on the disciples as they awaited it, those other disciples, and perhaps others, may have wondered, what is Peter going to say this time? But Peter surprises them and us with a speech of remarkable spiritual power. President Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech changed a nation by inspiring listeners to change their hearts. Likewise, Peter's speech cut those listeners to their hearts. They hear and they realize that they have crucified this Jesus, whom God has made both Lord and Christ. In a Bible study guide, Charles Swindoll refers to Patrick Morley's book, I Surrender. In it, Morley says that the church's integrity problem is in the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. And he goes on to say, it is revival without reformation, without repentance. Repentance appears in our actions. Polster George Gallup found that there's little difference 
in ethical behavior between the churched and the unchurched? I was surprised at that. There's as much pilferage and dishonesty, he says, among the churched as the unchurched. And continues, and I'm afraid that that applies pretty much across the board. Religion, per se, is not really life-changing. People cite it as important, for instance, in overcoming depression. But it doesn't have primacy in determining behavior. Well, I agree with him that religion is not life-changing. God is life-changing. Jesus is life-changing. The trappings and traditions of the institutional church are not life-changing. A relationship with God and with Jesus is what makes the church life-changing. Now, again, we didn't hear all of Peter's sermon today, but it's worth locating ourselves in the dusty temple courtyard with Peter's other listeners to realize with them, as he says, that we crucified Jesus. There's a lot that Jesus says that we don't like. Welcome those on the margins care for the widows and orphans, turn our other cheeks, give away our clothes, not just the ones that don't fit anymore, not just the ones that have gone out of style, but give away a coat that we wear. Life is easier, if less meaningful, without Jesus around. And so we kill him, symbolically, Again and again. What shall we do? That was the question of the listeners in the temple courtyard. What shall we do, we ask Peter, if we welcome his message? And he tells us, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have to make that turn. We have to subtract sin to add Christ to our lives. And then, by God's grace, we get to celebrate Easter again. He lives. We sang it. He's alive. We see it. He conquers death and our sin that would keep him in the grave. And this repentance, this turning around, leads us to action. Here's an example of what repentance looks like. It's 1865. The Civil War has ended. Robert E. Lee has been a gentleman at Appomattox. And has settled in Richmond, and it is a day of communion at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. There's a communion rail, and the minister invites people down for communion. Now, it's 1865. The white people are in the front of the church. The black people are in the back of the church. People are used to having the white people 
come down and receive communion first. Today, a black man stands up in the back and walks down the aisle and kneels at the communion rail. And you can feel the concern, perhaps the fear, the unknowing about what do we do now. A tall white man stands up and comes down the aisle and kneels at the communion rail beside the black man, Robert E. Lee. That's repentance. And that is living repentance. Now, it's not going to be that for us these days. We have to repent about other things besides what Robert E. Lee did. But what might that be for you? This table is a table of welcome. It's a table of repentance. And it's a table of forgiveness. And we are invited. We are welcomed by Christ here to join in with him as he breaks the bread, gives it to his disciples, as he passes the cup to his disciples. What a gift. God's grace.